Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Here is the Prime Minister of Australia. The Right Honourable R.G. Menzies. Fellow Australians, it is my melancholy duty to inform you, officially, that in consequence of a persistence by Germany in her invasion of Poland, Great Britain has declared war upon her, and that as a result, Australia is also at war. Hello everyone, welcome back to the History Hit Warfare podcast. I'm really happy to say that I've been joined once again by Jim Burroughs and his wife, Beryl. In fact, Beryl is a new addition to this episode, and you'll remember Jim from last Anzac Day. Jim is a 98-year-old veteran of the Second World War who fought in the Pacific Campaign as a coast watcher. And for this episode, they've kindly come back on to warfare to talk about what it was like in Australia during the Second World War. What it was like for Beryl, who served in the Royal Australian Air Force, as a records keeper, to live under the constant threat of Japanese invasion, of Japanese midget submarine attacks, of air attacks, and for Jim posted all the way off the coast of Australia on the Pacific Islands, watching out for enemy invasion, and also just generally helping to spot the tactical movements of the Japanese fleet. In fact, Jim and the Coast Watchers are credited with really helping to secure victory at Guadalcanal. So this is a fascinating episode, really great to have them both on the podcast. It's so rare you get to speak to people who actually served during the Second World War and hear the war in their own words. How are you doing today, Jim? How's the uh, lockdown in Melbourne? Are you guys okay? Are you able to go out and about? Nothing for 28 days clear, so we're all uh, alive again. Oh, that's brilliant. You offer us a glimpse of our post-COVID world. Well, thanks for coming on the Warfare Podcast. I'm really keen to learn more about Australia's role and experience during the Second World War. So perhaps we can start with that moment on the 3rd of September 1939, when Prime Minister... Robert Gordon Menzies announced that Australia was at war. Do you remember this day, Jim? Do you remember what you were doing at that moment? Yes, I do remember. I was only 16 at the time and it was all pretty dreary news. 
but not unexpected. But then it was during the next two years where my uh, twin brother, Tom, who joined the Air Force cadets, and my elder brother, Robert, had been in the Fortress Engineers down in uh, south of Victoria. While the Coast Watchers were fairly dormant for the next two years because the Pacific War hadn't started till December 741. But in the meantime, I wanted to uh, join the Army now, but my parents wouldn't sign the release because of the two brothers already involved. So I had to wait till I turned 18 and I couldn't do anything about it now and I couldn't join the Army quick enough. That was all adventure at the time and the two brothers were up there. I couldn't get up there quick enough, but that's when I first joined. But in the meantime, um, the Australians had just generally got used to the war in Europe. They'd sent thousands and thousands of soldiers and what have you over there, and it was all quite on the Eastern Front until that momentous day when uh, the Japanese bombed uh, Pearl Harbor. Yeah, absolutely. So what did Australia do in those intervening years, those early couple of years, to start to prepare for the war? Because, you know, the US had a little bit of time since the war was declared in Europe to start preparing and mobilising. Did Australia do the same? Did it start to up its war-making industry, get its troops ready? Was rationing brought in early on? What was it like? Well, my memory's not the best during that period, but life just went on. I started work and the family had grown up after difficult times over the years. And um, I just turned thirty. there's some rationing going on, but the main thrust was getting our soldiers over there to help the British over there in Europe. Yeah, and thousands of Australians did go over to Europe and fight, didn't they? Absolutely. In fact, there was almost a million Australians, both men and women, who served in the Second World War. So perhaps you can give us a bit of a, a brief overview of what your role was, but I also know that your wife served as well. So what was her role as well? Okay, well, as I say, uh, when I turned 18 and uh, was able to join the army, it was the day we uh, lined up to be given our uh, uniforms and what have you that I learned then uh, uh, when they said, uh, hands up those that have worked in an office, the rest of you are infantry. I had six weeks learning Morse code and I became a two and a half year or perhaps one and a half years with land head- headquarters with the only radio link uh, with Port Moresby where the Japanese were uh, just 26 miles away. And it was then uh, when we'd moved up to to Brisbane that we'd been released by uh, the lovely ladies, Awas, who'd come on stream, and uh, they asked for six volunteers for radio operators who were on secret dangerous missions, and that's when I couldn't put my hand up quick enough, and I uh, was one of six that joined the, uh, we found us, with the US Navy for six months running up and down in a PT boat. But getting back to uh, 43, I think it was, my wife Beryl, uh, who I didn't know then, of course, had joined the Royal Australian Air Force as a uh, records. She was offered a job uh, to learn radar with her sister, who had also joined at the same time. But 
Meryl, she lacked that, if you like, confidence in herself. So um, she knocked the radar back, which she later on uh, sort of was sorry she'd done so. But So she was in records for three years. And who knows, she probably would have handled the uh, fact that Tom, my twin brother, uh, his records would have gone to her system. So that's roughly, if you like, the start of life with the Second World War with both Beryl and herself. Mm. So Beryl's role then was being in the Australian Royal Air Force, being in charge and keeping hold of the records of those who were signing up and all the records that were going on in terms of of missions and so on and so forth. Correct. And during that time, she was also involved in visiting uh, all the poor airmen with terrible burns and injuries in the Heidelberg Hospital to uh, help them get through their problems. So she had a uh, quite a different role in that area as well. Can I get Beryl to say hello for a minute? Yeah, please do. How are you? Hi, Beryl. Nice to meet you. How are you doing? Good, thank you. Isn't she beautiful? Jim's... <laughs> Absolutely. You're a lucky man, Jim. Jim's the talker. I'm the retiring one. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, Jim was saying about your wartime role and how you're in the records office for the uh, Royal Australian Air Force. Yes, I was in it for three years, yeah, and I loved it. Wow, what did you do? What was your daily routine? What did you do? Uh, records, doing all the records of all the men and where they were and so forth. Only the airmen, yeah. So you got a bit of a, a look of how the war was going on on the other side then and where the troops were moving. Oh, yes. I used to know what was going on and we weren't allowed to talk about it, of course. Mm. You probably knew more than Jim. Yes, yes. We knew what was going on. Yes, yes. And um, what was it like living back in Australia when you knew the Japanese were so near and off the coast? Well, was like all the young ones nothing was going to happen to you you worried more about the people in london and what they were putting up with we had um rationing and everything we were short of food just like you and uh comforts but uh and blackouts and everything but uh but otherwise we had good times all the ladies together (laughs) we were always with plenty of company so and that was always nice it was rather hard when you left camp yeah lots of camaraderie i'm sure between the women in the office together Oh, yes, there was. And even today, if you meet someone that was in the services, you were straight away friends. Yeah, friends for life. Yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit about Australia itself then, because you might think that during the Second World War, Australia was in a bit of a, a vulnerable position. Did you ever feel that Australia might fall, say, after Hong Kong in '41? or Singapore in 42, was there ever that feeling that Australia might be next as the seemingly unstoppable Japanese forces persevered and pushed on through? Well, I hate that when you say that's a good question, but that's a good question because I more recently put a special article on my website on that very issue where the authorities in Japan were keen to, uh, after their success of of invasion of Rabaul and possibly uh, going to be 
Port Moresby was failed, but that's a different story. But they said he hell-bent on invading Australia because they, they would have had their bases, uh, all in, including the Solomon Islands. But fortunately, Tojo himself and Yamamoto vetoed all that and uh, said, no, uh, our uh, resources would be stretched too far. And they couldn't have been more correct because that's what finished them on the Kokoda track when they literally just ran out of supplies. So so Tojo himself and Yamamoto vetoed that order. So um, I've written in the uh, article, did the Japanese intend to uh, invade Australia, to which I've uh, given the evidence that the answer is no. Uh, whilst it was originally intended, Yamamoto and Tojo uh, vetoed that. So the answer is no, they did not intend to invade. But in the meantime, they still continued to bomb our cities, knock off all the ships uh, down the east coast, including a hospital ship, um, and also uh, pursuing the attack into Port Moresby, which ultimately uh, cost them 60,000 deaths. So that's of their own people, not to mention the poor Aussies and the Americans who also suffered. And for every death, there's two and a half times more injuries, which put them all out of action. So it was a case of the Japanese killing their own people unnecessarily because they weren't going to invade Australia. Can you tell us a bit more about the events of what happened at Port Moresby? Well, the 5,000 Japanese on the flotilla that had walked into Rabaul and Kaviang, New Island, the Japanese um, then tried to, uh, they landed and tried to take Milne Bay at the end of New Guinea and got the hell belted out of them and uh, the Aussies make them retreat. But that all took up place in February and March and April. Then they decided to uh, go on to uh, Moresby, and that's when the Coast Watchers spotted them, alerted the Americans' uh, base, which was in Townsville, Australia. And then, uh, fortunately, uh, this is three or four months after most of the American fleet were battered and bashed, but uh, repaired and what have you. So they had... Uh, seven of their warships on hand in the Townsville area and plus two Australian ships. So the nine of them went out to uh, the Coral Sea, which was the sea between Rabaul and uh, and Moresby, and the famous Battle of the Coral Sea took place. And it was one of those unique war events where uh, neither sides saw each other visibly. It was all done by bombers and aircraft carriers. Both lost aircraft carriers and lots of bombers, etc. But the Japanese were beaten. They had to retreat back to Rebel to be repaired and what have you. That's what saved Australia and Moresby in particular to answer your question because they would have just walked in and had all the infrastructure just like they did in Rebel. So um, that was the history of Moresby. And then, of course, just in a, a few words, the young Aussies that only knew how to use a broomstick for, for their rifles uh, went up the Kokoda Trail and then later on uh, helped by some returning diggers from the Middle East. And then, of course, the Americans, when they caused the Japanese to retreat, but they'd really had a... They got to within 26 miles of Moresby, but they'd run out of supplies and, and support stretch themselves a bit too thin there maybe and maybe that's one of those decisions that kind of helps influence the fact that they don't move on to australia you know you need you can't have that gap between your teeth of your military and the tail of your supplies because you just lose 
all power at the front. Yeah, correct. It's a shame. Now, to, now that's a shame. Just just as an aside, I don't know how to put it, with, but Douglas MacArthur, who was totally in charge, and I'm not discrediting him in any way because he was very instrumental in running the American uh, machine to uh, ultimately move up north. But he made the fatal mistake that he wanted to pursue the uh, Japanese who were in retreat and beaten in that Battle of the Beachheads, as it's called, with Gona and Buna. The Japanese lost something like 25,000 soldiers and uh, all the wounded. But, of course, unfortunately, the Aussies and the Allied Americans uh, lost uh, enormous numbers too. So, once again, when uh, the army was defeated, and no doubt about it, it was heavily criticised by the Americans themselves, Douglas MacArthur uh, made the wrong step there. Absolutely. Can we... um focus a little bit on some of those attacks you mentioned on the Australian mainland itself, because it was just 10 weeks after Pearl Harbor that that same Japanese carrier force turned its attention to Darwin with terrible and destructive consequences. They call it the Australian Pearl Harbor, don't they? Do you remember this? Well, I'm sure it's hard to forget. I'm sure it's etched in your memory. It's one of the worst in fact, the heaviest attack and loss on Australian soil in military history, I think. That was in February 42, and we certainly lost 273 killed at Darwin and plus uh, the injuries and all that. But they also bombed uh, Broome and even went further east into Rockhampton, uh, wreaking more havoc uh, with about 69 uh, bombing raids. Now, timing-wise and how I saw it, that was February 42, and I Joined, oddly enough, it was just a week before Japanese invaded Rabaul that uh, I actually joined the army. So um, once I was in the army, uh, I only would have heard whatever was in the local newspapers in Melbourne and so forth, and which was all pretty disastrous. But some of the bright sparks in uh, government had um, deemed that the Japanese would invade Australia, and they called it the Brisbane Line, which means they'd given up that the Japanese would invade Rockhampton, the Townsville, Mackay, whatever, all of northern Australia into captivity. And with the last line of defence in, in Brisbane, unreal. As it turned out, uh, none of that happened, but that's how desperate, and in fact, even as far south as Victoria and other states, um, people digging holes in their backyards as, to protect themselves and what have you and rationing was on and things were pretty tough. In fact Australia was, with that Brisbane line declared, was pretty well under the understanding that the Japanese would be coming. If you've always wanted to know more about some of the key events that shaped the medieval period and the modern world then Gone Medieval from History Hit is the podcast for you. From this... The king ordered all the Danish men who were in England to be killed because he'd heard a rumour that they were trying to topple him. They seemed to have been beheaded one by one in some kind of systematic manner. To this... The stakes are so high. Even when she first appears on the scene, Joan says, I've got one year to do this. So she knows that this is going to come to a sticky end. With a whole lot of this in between. The knightly class is a group of people who have been chosen by God. Armour is a physical proof that that's literally true. With guests lined up at the drawbridge, it's time to let them in and begin the feast for your ears that is Gone Medieval. The podcast from History Hit, 
Together, my co-host Dr. Kat Jarman and I, Matt Lewis, we've gone medieval and we're waiting for you to join us. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile unlimited premium wireless. Ready to get 30 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20 20, 20 ready to get 20 20, ready to get 15 15, 15 15, just 15 bucks a month. So, give it a try at mintmobile.com/switch. $45 up front for 3 months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Astonishing to think, isn't it, that if the Japanese had invaded, then they would have been able to push all the way through and that the Australians had adopted a kind of defence in depth, which I suppose is the only way you could defend against such a vast preponderance of force coming through. If you look over into Europe and Hitler's attempts at trying to build a static defensive Atlantic wall, well, that just didn't work, did it? It was overcome in less than a day. So I suppose the only option that the Australians felt they had was to allow vast waves of the country, because it is a massive country, to be held under under Japanese rule for a, a short period of time, one would hope. Yeah, well, you're on the ball there, James, because all our army was over in Europe and we only had whoever was left. So um, it was really a case of the northern half of Australia would have been forsaken. But as it turned well, well, out, ha- it didn't. Yeah, well... Unfortunately, but they had you, Jim, as a, as a coast watcher off the coast, protecting Australia and making sure that you could spot those fleets as they were coming in. If I can put it in a nutshell, the prime, if you like, and the only mandate the coast watchers had, apart from the fact that don't get bloody well caught, because if you're caught, you won't be carrying out your duty, but was to report the movements of the Japanese in the practical sense, that is by air, the Japanese by air and uh, sea, for example, always. The, um, flights down to Guadalcanal and Moresby uh, from the Rabaul base and also the shipping that was knocked back on, on the Battle of Pearl Harbor. So that was the, uh, the stage with the Coast Watchers not really protecting Australia. It might have been uh, you know, subliminally or uh, in the background that that might have been an ultimate mm-hmm. effect. But getting back to your question, uh, their role was quite simple, uh, which they did very successfully. And as I mentioned, 
interested in my main article, They Turned the Tide of the Pacific War, by, uh, when Halsey said the Coast Watchers saved Guadalcanal and Guadalcanal saved the Pacific War. The objective is one. Southeastern New Guinea was an important enemy stronghold in the South Pacific. From here, they planned the invasion of Australia. Now, their equipment, their bases, are in allied hands. For General Douglas MacArthur, it is a victory of major importance. Australians and Americans hurled the enemy back into the sea. You had a kind of regional, tactical intelligence role, making sure that you could transfer back information to HQ to say where the Japanese were moving, what direction they were going, as a means to ready up any forces to intercept or to allow US and Australian forces to be ready for anything that was incoming. Yeah, that really, in a nutshell, is the basic function we did. I know from previous discussion, James, there was a bit of a side issue there that were we worried or whatever, where we were overlooking Rabaul. Yeah, I've been asked, you know, were you scared? And and I say, not for one minute. It was all a big adventure. And I may have mentioned before, I've got the old adage that nothing's going to happen to you. It might happen to the other bloke, but not you. And it either happens or it doesn't happen. But again, uh, back to your comment, I might have added a little bit extra there, but for the Coast Watchers, the function was not necessarily directly to protect Australia. It was to uh, nominate the movements of the Japanese. Japanese, which of course would have been steps to do that, but as I mentioned before, it wasn't going to happen anyway, but they didn't know that. It is an astonishing history, and for our listeners who haven't had a chance to listen to Jim's other episode with us, Jim was a coast watcher during the Second World War, working with um, indigenous troops as well, locals who had been brought into the military, and Jim spent 10 weeks um, in occupied Japanese territory. Is that right, Jim? Was it 10 weeks? 10 months. When you were reporting on Japanese uh, movements? So 10 months, not 10 weeks. <laughs> 10 months. Goodness <laughs> me. Multiply them by four. <laughs> Bloody hell. What is it like spending 10 months in Japanese territory? Well, we just had a routine... Uh... You mentioned the indigenes, which I'll start off with because they were so much an integral part of all the parties. I think I've mentioned before, and I'll just repeat quickly, that a case was a typical party of five or six to ten or eleven, made up of three components. The first uh, are the, um, the Aussie expats uh, lived in New Guinea. As I say, mining operators, teachers, whatever, anyone uh, that was there, they became the leaders of the Coast Watchers. The second was a a radio operator, and I was one of those. And thirdly, uh, most importantly, the indigenous natives. They were about equal in numbers. There were roughly 400 Coast Watchers and roughly about the same, but they'd been specifically trained. And that was so essential, James. It was just unreal because, once again, without them um, who came on shore with us, with their native skills, they'd uh, chop down trees and get palm leaves and build a sort of a shack for us to to have shelter. They would be used, because we were parked on a uh, sharp ridge, 
they were used uh, acts as sentinels, one or two at each end, uh, in case any Japanese came along. And also they uh, prepared us food, which was usually all rice. And uh, most importantly, <laughs> a little bit embarrassing to say that they uh, dug a hole and uh, straddled it with branches so we could uh, squat when necessary. <laughs> they even rigged up a, some bamboo poles where you could uh, use one end and watch it going down. <laughs> Anyway, um, in other words, they were there teaching us how to live. Those indigenous were very poorly treated. I don't know what sort of money they got, but all I know is that we lined them up once a week and gave them a, a, a twister of tobacco that they used. Uh, finally, the fourth element of the, the Coast Watchers, which came by default with 273 uh, first independent commanders had come up with NARC force, and um, all the officers by picked up by the Japanese and taken off in a nice safe boat to Japan where they had a bit of a rough time, but every one of them made it home after uh, four or five years or whatever it was. But in the meantime, it meant that all the troops of uh, Lark Force, including the commanders, were bereft of uh, so-called officers above them to look after them, uh, give orders to them and what have you. So by default, they became lost soldiers, uh, except for the 132 that were on the Montevideo Maru and drowned, they became, if you like, wandering uh, ghosts, and uh, Eric Feld picked them all up, and they became the fourth element of a typical party to uh, provide military support. And in fact, most of them were involved in Bougainville and all the islands between Rabaul and Guadalcanal, and I think probably about oh, I don't know, 30 or 40 of them all got awarded medal- medallions from the Americans. <laughs> so they were very well looked after, and uh, but they did a did a wonderful job. So they were the four elements for which everyone, particularly the natives, were um, absolutely essential. And they were wonderful. We got to know them well, and, and obviously we soon learned Pigeon English, like time before me come long place, all he called him rebel now. Man belong Japan, he come there, we kiss him and kiss him and boot him right out, etc., etc. So I still don't remember my uh, pigeon English and uh, not to mention my Morse code. Da 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 you probably wouldn't have survived during those 10 months. For certain, uh, if, if the Japanese had been doing their job, we wouldn't have survived. But it didn't worry us. We were there to give them a job to do, and we did it, and that was it. And uh, unfortunately, I was one of three brothers that came home. Yeah. Well, speaking about back home, I was reading about the attacks on Australia, and one that I came across was the Japanese use of small midget submarines to attack Sydney Harbour. Do you know much about this case? Well, we heard about it, I think that was in about July uh, 42. So we would have known about that because I was still in Victoria before I'd uh, gone north. And um, so it was all pretty nasty stuff, uh, you know, almost unbelievable. And in fact, uh, we later learned, which I find it absolutely impossible, but way down as far south as Tasmania, a Japanese submarine, don't ask me how, came out with a seaplane put together, and the seaplane wandered all around Tasmania and into southern Victoria. Uh, It was sighted all over the place. Obviously, uh, it was just reconnaissance, and there was no way of an attack or anything like that. They were just casing 
place out, but that's part of it. And, and in the meantime, the submarines were doing mortal damage, and including the a hospital ship that went down with everybody, the, the Centaur, off the eastern seaboard. Wow, it is, it is amazing, isn't it, to recall this history and just think how so much of it has actually been neglected by those who write these histories. I mean, these are key events throughout Australia's history of the Second World War that I think we need to remember and to, uh, to bring back to an audience. So thank you so much for coming on the podcast, Jim. Can I just ask, when was the war over for you? Because, of course, the Japanese officially unconditionally surrender on the 14th of August 1945. Is this the moment the war ends for you, or does it happen a little later? The actual war finished there, and uh, and I had sent a message to headquarters, could we walk into Rebel? And uh, I just had the vague, vague hope. I didn't know about Robert's fate, but I knew about Tom's fate. And um, we used to get sometimes some escape escapee natives out of Rebel coming up through the mountains, and uh, we'd patch them up with some medication, what have you, and I'd be probably careful to, but somehow or other in discussing and questioning the, the natives about prisoners, I, I just sort of had a, a vague hopefulness that Bob or Tom might have been a prisoner in Rabaul. Uh, obviously, uh, that wasn't the case. And the, the other thing is uh, we weren't allowed to do that because with all the Japanese down there that mightn't have known the war was over, they might have wanted to knock us off. So in that case, the um, three of us had our natives and without the natives we would have known which way to go we walked for a week down to Tull where the 150 blokes had been uh, massacred by the Japanese but that was where we had another Coast Watcher base and then from there um, this is where my memory fails me I don't know how the hell we uh, got around we didn't swim so we we somehow got down to lay where I was given the job of closing up the, the US base Coast Watcher base, and then um, a few of us uh, again. Uh, I can't remember how we got round there into Fitzhaven, where hundreds, if not thousands, of Aussies were waiting for repatriation back by ship to Australia. And then um, some bloke said, "What are you doing there?" I said, "Oh, we're catching a plane back to." Back to Brisbane, I said, yeah, you'll be here for months, mate. And uh, quarter past 11, the Liberator dropped in and picked us up and we walk in the streets of Brisbane uh, that afternoon, yeah. Mm. So they looked after us. Uh, so uh, all that had taken, getting back to your question, all that had taken from uh, end of, that's August 15, to um, probably about late November or early December. Then I came down and I was uh, discharged early. We had a point system when you can get out of the army, but because I had two brothers lost, uh, got what was called a compassionate discharge, and I was allowed out in uh, December. That's when I tried to visit my sister who died in childbirth, and then, uh, but I went straight back to work then, where I was with the uh, Chartered Accountant's Office. So that's three months after. Mm. Well, I'm sure for many it was a time of celebration, but for your family, it must have been a time of mourning 
and trying to come to terms with with that loss but also of course very happy to have you home safe as well i'm sure yes uh, as i think i mentioned before the, our family of seven became a family of three in just four years with the father dying and sister in childbirth and my two brothers here which is pretty tough on me old mum but it uh, brought us up during a depression with dad always out of work and, and the uh, sisters helping us they my sisters so um but she lived till 83 and had a happy the happiest time she had was in a retirement village at the end of her life <laughs> it was lovely and you're about to hit 98 isn't that right jim yes and beryl's 97 so uh as of today we're both 97 but i run ahead of her then mm. when did you and beryl meet uh, it was probably um, three or four years after the war. We uh, met playing tennis. Uh, oh, I, I I can't play very well, but I love it. That's yeah. where we met. Mm. We met him at tennis, yes. Bill gets a bit embarrassed, but I sometimes jokingly say uh, she had a cute little bum with <laughs> white shorts, and we got together, and um, and then actually she had a girlfriend and I had a boyfriend, uh, I mean a, a mate, and then um, this friend was who became my uh, best man was going out with Beryl, and I was well, stuck with the other one. But anyway, <laughs> I'm the only one that had wheels, so I uh, one night I dropped them all off and, and took Beryl home, and that's where it might have started. So it was five years after the war. In those days, uh, most marriages took place in the early 20s, but we were both 27 before we got married. But we've now had... 70 lovely years with the best wife you can imagine and uh, and we're both living all right at the moment well you're a lucky man jim i'm glad that you're both able to uh, continue to live up life post lockdown in melbourne and celebrate Jim's birthday yeah i know yeah 96 he's an old man isn't no, he i married an old man 98 <laughs> 98 that's right you're both very lucky Keep enjoying the post-lockdown Melbourne life and I look forward to talking to you again soon. Thanks, Jane. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 
And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hit. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland, further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.